You need to make a decision and you'd like to involve other stakeholders in the process, but you don't want to leave the impression that they get to make the decision. That's a tough line to walk. In this episode, how to involve stakeholders so they know how their input will be used or not. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 586. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Whenever we're making decisions as leaders, which of course a big part of leadership is decision-making, I know many of us have had the thought, I should probably involve other stakeholders in this decision, either inform them, get their input, or maybe involve them directly in the decision process. And yet, even though we have that thought, and sometimes we take some action to do that, I think many of us don't approach those conversations with as much intentionality as we potentially could. Today, I'm so glad to welcome a guest expert who is going to help us to think through how to involve stakeholders in decisions and to do that in a way that is very intentional. I'm pleased to introduce to you Eric Pliner. He is Chief Executive Officer of YSC Consulting. He has designed and implemented leadership strategy in partnership with some of the world's best-known CEOs and organizations. Eric's writing has been featured in Harvard Business Review, Fortune, Forbes, and Fast Company. He's a member of the Dramatists Guild of America and co-author of the U.S. National Standards for Health Education and Spooky Dog and the Teenage Gang Mysteries with Amy Rhodes, an off-Broadway theatrical parody of television cartoons for adults. He is a board director with Hip Hop Public Health. He's also the author of Difficult Decisions, How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity, and Empathy. Eric, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. And as I mentioned in the intro, I think many of us have had the thought when we are making decisions, if not taking action on it, that we should involve some of the other stakeholders in those decisions. And you write in the book this line, in general, adults prefer that actions affecting their lives are taken with them rather than done to them. And I reflected on that sentence and I thought, well, that's certainly true for me too. And yet a lot of times when we get into decision-making mode, we sometimes forget that, don't we? Indeed, the the temptation can often be when we have to make a big decision to be quite directive about it. But given that the choices that we have to make as leaders affect real people's real lives, those people don't necessarily want to be told what to do, or at least if they're not in an emergency situation, don't want to be told how they should respond or engage. They want to be engaged right up front and have the opportunity to share their perspective and maybe even to influence your decision making. Yeah, and it's it's something that um, when I've when I've stopped to have that conversation with leaders, and I've, I reflect on my own career over the years, I've certainly done a little bit of that, but it's usually been really informal. I think, hmm, you know, this person would probably be interested in what we're doing with this, or maybe they'd like some input. I'm going to go sit down and talk with them and just get some insight from them. But I haven't really. I haven't really approached it with a lot of intention. And one of the things that I really see in your work is that there's a lot of benefit to really thinking this through in a very intentional way. That's the premise behind the, the notion of leadership strategy. The idea that 
when we are leading, we can do that by default based on what we've seen other people do or based on models of leadership that we've experienced out in the world. Or we can choose to do it with intention, the same way we create a financial strategy, a plan to be able to execute on a desired financial outcome. We can create a leadership strategy. We can say that the way that I'm going to interact with people, the way that I'm going to comport myself as an individual, the way that I'm going to build a culture is something that I can do with intent. And the reality is that the more likely we are to, to engage with intent, the more likely we are to get outcomes that are in line with our total desire or our total plan, rather than just leaving those things to default. Yeah, indeed. And I latched on to this part in the book where you really outline for leaders how we can be a little more intentional about involving stakeholders into our decision-making and what to say, what not to say, and some of the things to articulate. And it, it starts with some clarification. And one of the invitations you make is that when you're at the beginning of this process is to clarify exactly who you're going to engage and how you intend to do so. And I'm wondering, how do you determine who should be engaged in a process like this? I think the first thing is to think about who the decision is going to affect once it's made. The more people that you can involve who will be the subject of the decision, the greater the likelihood that you'll get their buy-in when you're making that decision. Now, you have to give some thought, and we'll come on to this in a moment, about exactly how you're going to engage them. But cast a wide net to begin with. Think about everyone who's going to be affected, for whom there will be ramifications of your choice, and what they might like to know up front before or while you're in the process of making that decision. There's a inevitability here of like time and resources. I know uh, many times folks do have that, if if not conscious thought, they sort of know they should do that. And then they think, well, I don't have time to engage all the people I'd want to. Have you found something helpful to start to um, surface who are the key people versus who are the people that, you know, maybe they do have an interest, but it's just not practical to spend the time to engage them? Yeah, sure. Well, the first thing is to say, you can cast too wide a net. And of course, the risk in that is that everyone around you will feel that they are on the receiving end of your decision and therefore they should be involved in everything. And that's part of where you have to be a little bit careful. But I think thinking about who is first and foremost directly impacted by the choice that you make. And second of all, who are the people that will have to influence others based on the decision that you make? That is to say, not only are there ramifications for them, but that they'll have to play a role in engaging other people, enrolling other people, maybe even inspiring other people to move the decision forward. Those are the folks that are most essential to get on board with whatever your plan is. And therefore, they're the ones that you want to prioritize when you're determining how to spend your time to engage stakeholders who are affected by your decision. You mentioned that uh, before discussing the content of the decision with the stakeholders that you identify, that it's really key to explain clearly and directly exactly how the decision is going to be made. And when you're talking about that in the book, you follow it up with a line that says, don't mess this part up. <laughs> What's the part that people mess up? Yeah, um, I, I say that with uh, with a bit of laughter, but also the uh, the benefit of hindsight, having messed this part up plenty of times myself. The part that we often mess up is that we just talk to people about the decision that we need to make 
rather than the way that we intend to make it. Why is that messing it up? Because the recipient always assumes that once you're asking them, they have more authority, more power, more influence over the decision than you might be expecting. Uh, and if you're not exactly clear with them about what what authority you're granting them, that gap in your respective assumptions can come back to haunt both of you if you ultimately make a choice that isn't in line with their recommendation. Interesting. That reminds me of something else you wrote. I'm quoting you now. Absent that clarification, the individual is likely to assume that their perspective is a veto. And I think back to situations I've been involved in too, when someone comes to me asking for input or advice, and it's not clear like what happens next. I've I've often come away with that impression too. Yeah, no doubt. I think it's a completely natural reaction. And the way that I think of it, and frankly, I, this is something that I get super irritated about when other people do it and I'm on the receiving end. Um, I think, well, why did you ask me if you weren't going to follow my recommendation here? Well, the truth is the reason you may have been asking me wasn't necessarily because you wanted a recommendation. Maybe you just wanted to know what I thought. Maybe you were curious about getting some input. But I encourage the decision maker to think through four different options that you can give and make explicit with the person with whom you're engaging. Are you giving them a view, that is, an opportunity to share their perspective, a voice, that is, an opportunity for you to account for that perspective and to incorporate that into your thinking, a vote where they have some input into and influence over the final decision that you make that would be counted alongside other people's votes, or finally, a veto where if they say no, then you're not going to go ahead with it. This is a good strategy, by the way, for thinking about dealing with kids too, especially for people who have teenagers, getting really clear on I'm asking you because I'm letting you make the call, or I'm asking you because I want to know what you think is really important for avoiding that conflict based on a gap in understanding later on. Uh, indeed. Yeah, there's so many venues I could see this being helpful. And and the key is like saying this out loud of being really apparent what you're doing. And so these four, a view, a voice, a vote, as in you're part of the decision, and then a veto, as in if you decide that this isn't the right fit, like we'll stop. I, I think I'm really clear on the vote and the veto. What's the distinction between seeking a view and seeking a voice and how you would, like what that is, but also how you would talk about that to a stakeholder? Yeah. When I want to hear your view, that's because I'm interested in understanding your perspective. It doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to account for your perspective, but especially in environments where people have lots of different ways of seeing the world, where we come together with diversity of identity, diversity of experience, asking someone to share, how do you see this problem, can help to inform the caliber of my thinking in the long run, even if it doesn't affect my decision-making right now. But when I give you a voice, I'm actually saying to you, I want your input to inform what I'm doing here. Uh, uh, when, when I get a view from you, I might still make a decision authoritatively. I'm going to decide. But when I ask, for your voice, I'm leveraging you. I'm saying, I want to know what you think, even though I'm ultimately going to decide, I want your perspective to be an input into how I make that decision. Ah, uh, that's really helpful. Thank you. Okay. So given that then, if you are just seeking a view and going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, going to seek a view and then this person 
leaves that conversation thinking that they have veto power over it, right? There's some art to how to phrase this, I'm guessing, because you probably don't want to sit down with someone to who's you're seeking their view and say, you know, I'd really like to know what you think about this, but I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna involve that in the converse, um, the, the decision making process at all. How do you, how do you phrase that, Eric? Like when you get into a, a conversation like that, where it is more centered just on the view. Yeah, I love this question in part because this is a thing that because of the nuance required to do it well, we are really likely to skip. Uh. We avoid it because we don't want it to feel awkward. But I think rather than starting with what I'm not doing with you, we can start with what we are doing. So rather than saying, I'm not really going to account for what you're sharing with me, but I just want to know what you think. Instead, I can start with, I'm going to make a decision on this, or I'm being asked to make a call on this this difficult choice here. And, you know, I, I want to know how other people think of it. Can you tell me a little bit about how you would see this problem? That way you're making it clear that this is more of a theoretical exercise, one that we're exploring cognitively rather than one that we're actioning together. Let the other person know exactly what you've been asked to do, charged to do, or that you are responsible or accountable for doing, and then make it crystal clear what their role is, why you've come to them to get their perspective. You mention as part of this too, that it's important to standardize the process to focus on decision-making. What does that look like when you say standardizing a process? Um, how does that play out? It's different in, in different settings. The, the part that's important here is that you find a way of making decisions and conveying decision-making authority that works for you, your team, your organization, and you do it over and over again so that you're building a muscle so that we don't default to the assumption that we have more authority than we're supposed to or than the leader might think, or so that as leaders, we're not creating that gap in our understanding and others' understanding. I share in the book a story of a Fortune 500 company that I worked with who was really struggling at their executive team level to be able to make complex decisions together. And so when we introduced the notion of standardizing a decision-making process, they wanted to understand, well, what are the things that we need to be to have be standard every time? One was clarity that there was a decision to be made. Secondarily was clarity about who was going to make that decision. And third was who was going to be accountable for implementing the decision once it was made. And so they went from having their meeting agendas organized around typical update topics, something many of us do in meetings, to having their meeting agendas organized by decision. Each item on their agenda was a question that they needed to answer next to the question with how the decision was going to be made or who was going to make it. And then as part of the course in their meetings, once they began to use that process, they then added in the meeting before they moved on to the next item, how was it going to be actioned and who was accountable for it? That was something that they had to do with tremendous discipline in the beginning until it became a muscle, a, a, a second nature way of working for them so that they were able to do it without organizing their meetings in those ways because they understood what was expected of them and how it affected their ability to implement tough choices together. How often do you run into a organization where a leader has really made the decision-making process that apparent, where it's on the agenda, where everyone understands exactly how decisions are going to be made? It's very much the exception, almost never. And in fact, that the times that, that I've encountered it are probably times when a leader has come to me or to my team and said, we're really struggling with this issue. What do you suggest? 
And then we've laid this out for them as a way of managing it. And in those cases, sometimes we get uh, we get an organization or a team that builds this kind of practice as a way of working together. For a while, and, and I think still in many places, a lot of different decision-making or prioritization tools became really popular. Maybe you've seen the RASCI or similar kinds of, of matrices by which people assign responsibility. But what those still don't account for is the part where we're clear about who has final authority. And that's what's especially important because that's where the interpersonal risks happen that people can take quite personally and struggle with in a way that can be quite disengaging for a team. My experience has been really similar on this when talking with our members. It seems like it is very much the exception that there is a process and that it's really clear and documented and part of framing a meeting. You've, of course, seen success of teams and organizations getting better at that. When a leader and a team actually starts to shift to make this more apparent and more standardized as part of their process, what is it that you find tends to give them some traction to make that work where you know someone else may not have it stick? Well, the biggest thing is that the accountability and responsibility for ensuring that the decision-making process is explicit no longer sits exclusively with the leader. What do I mean by that? Somebody else around the table says, hey, wait, wait a second, before we move on, how are we making this call? Who's deciding? Um, that the entire team takes responsibility together for ensuring that we're practicing this discipline. That way, it's not the leader, again, trying to impose something on the group, but it also allows the leader to be human and fallible too, that she might forget, oh, right, uh, I, I forgot to have us go through this because of how busy we are, how fast we need to move. Um, the whole team recognizes that it's a shared accountability and takes it up with enthusiasm, with excitement, with expectation, rather than uh, leaving it to the leader to do it or assuming it won't happen. Then it becomes part of the culture, right? It's not just relying on one person uh, to drive it. It's the entire team really driving it. Indeed. And what's nice is then when those teams cascade that practice to their teams or to their peers, and eventually you see an entire culture shift because everybody has those expectations about ways of working together. And uh, everything, I'm, I'm struck by everything we've talked about so far is actually the before <laughs> we actually ask for input, right? It's like thinking through... Yeah. Deciding who, it's thinking through how we're framing it, the expectations, the level of involvement the person has, how do we standardize it. Of course, at some point, we get to the actual asking the person for their input. And my sense is, like, when I think about my own experience doing this, I, first of all, I missed, I would have historically missed most of what you just said of it, describing to a person what their role is and all that. But then I, I think I would probably ask the question, like, just what do you think is probably the standard question I'd ask. And I think that's the, a question a lot of people would ask. I'm guessing there's some better nuance, though, than just like jumping in and saying, what do you think? In order to actually elicit some of this input, what have you seen that's worked well to actually get the kind of input you want? There's a, a, a one word solution that I think goes a really long way towards getting a lot more data out of somebody that you're asking for input. And that's asking why. Not only do you want to know what they think, but you want to know why they think that. Where are they coming from? What have been the inputs to their thinking? Is it something about their identities, their social identities, their experiences, their perspectives? Is it something about their role? Is it something based on a, a, a similar decision that they've seen before that's either gone really well or gone wrong? 
Is it just a hunch that they have? You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with a hunch. A hunch or our intuition is actually a different kind of data based on our experiences than we might get from a spreadsheet. But maybe they got it from a spreadsheet or maybe it's the aggregation of life experiences that are informing them. The degree to which you consider and the ways in which you consider their input can be affected by the source of that point of view. And so don't just stop at finding out what they think. Keep going to understand why they think that, where it comes from. And if you still don't have enough, you can keep asking why. There's a, a tool that's been around for about 50 years. I reference it in the book called The Five Whys. Oh, and yeah. that is every time you ask why, keep asking it a few more times. Yeah. And I'm thinking about that framework where we're just asking for someone for their view and we do ask that second or third question, right? The why, like getting into like, how did they come to that? Where did that, where did that start? Where did that opinion um, take them? That someone who goes down that path and says, oh, you know, it's just kind of how I think about it or my own experience, like that, that's interesting. Another person who says, hey, at my last organization, we did almost the exact same thing. And here's what happened to this large team. Like, that's a really different kind of data, right? <laughs> like potentially a lot more valuable. And you might weigh that a little bit more in your thinking than you would the first piece. So, and, but you wouldn't get there unless you actually ask that second or third question. And then you've got the benefit of so much other knowledge, so much other content to be able to inform the way that you make a choice. It may not be in exactly parallel situations. You don't need to over-index on it, but how great to have another source of data to help you decide what the right way forward is. Here, here's the one thing to be aware of. A lot of us, when we're making tough decisions, really just want to get it right. And we often assume that the way to do that is to just aggregate as much data as we possibly can, and then the right answer will make itself evident. But the truth is that there's often more than one right answer. We'll never be completely sure if the choice that we made was the right one. So having input from other people, having the benefit of their experience, having the benefit of their perspective can go a long way in helping you to make the best possible choice in a situation that is likely to be complex and nuanced. In addition to asking the second or third, the, the why and getting into the, the kind of the bigger thing behind it, is there anything you found that's helpful for the leader who's asking input to get a little bit out of that traditional mindset you described of, you know, I'm just going to aggregate as much data as I can? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And I think the best way to do it is to force yourself and the person or people that you're engaging with to argue the contrary perspective. A great way to get richer data rather than just more data is to say to the person, all right, so your view is that we should go ahead with X. Now tell me all of the reasons why we absolutely shouldn't. And if I was trying to convince you that you needed to talk me out of this, what would you say? Once you've done that, then you can circle back around and say, okay, so now let's talk ourselves out of the argument you just made. But oftentimes people who have made up their mind have considered what are some of the reasons not to pursue an alternate path. And that's additional data that they're holding that they might not share with you, especially as a leader, because their fear is that if they don't convince you by only sharing information that informs the desired outcome on their perspective, that you might not go along with it. But instead, get them to, to make really explicit, what's all the stuff you've thought about that explains why we shouldn't do this. And then we can work back around in response to uh, how that can inform the positive choice at the end of the decision. The invitation you make at the end of a conversation like this is to thank the stakeholder 
and then remind them about how the decision is going to be made. I'm guessing the key word there is remind because of a line you write closely after that. You say, don't underestimate the importance of reasserting the process of making the decision and their role in it. What's so critical about that? Well, remember, absent making explicit with intent exactly how we're going to make the decision, we've got years, decades of calcified experience that tells us, oh, you're asking me, therefore I must be making the decision for you or telling you how to make the decision. And so every chance we get to reassert, this is the way this is going to happen, the greater the likelihood that we'll avoid misunderstanding later on. That way, even if the person has come into the conversation with some preconceived notions from the very beginning, you've reminded them exactly what you've asked them, but also why you've asked them, how that will inform or not inform the ultimate choice and who is going to be making the call in the end. Yeah, and I I appreciate you pointing out that there's the tendency to feel like you're belaboring some of the details on this, but that the the problem is a lot of times like the decision, like even if you're the decision maker, you lose power and impact if you don't have the engagement of stakeholders. And so by following a process like this, I mean, obviously nothing's guaranteed, but you're more likely to keep people engaged and understand how they are part of the process. Because like, that's what people really want. They want to be part of the process, even if they're not necessarily the decision maker, right? Exactly. And like we said at the beginning, adults and, and probably kids too, like to feel like things are being done with us rather than being done to us. We don't want to be the subject or object of your decision. We want to be involved in making the decision with you. And so even though it could feel overwrought to go through all of these steps, the truth is you and I are picking it apart right now and going into a lot of detail. But once you learn how to do it, this is something that from start to finish, you can do in a matter of of minutes. You can make it second nature. Ensure that you're using the benefit of the process to engage people meaningfully to make sure that you are getting a greater likelihood of getting your desired outcome or the outcome that you've agreed with your stakeholders. And you're not necessarily doing something that's as painful as it might sound if we pick it apart in the kind of detail that you and I are right now, but instead something that becomes second nature in a really positive way for you and your stakeholders. Yeah, my invitation for everyone is to actually uh, do just that, is follow this process, get some practice with it. Because when I saw this, I thought, wow, you know, I've I'd never really thought about following this in an intentional way. And so we'll detail this in the episode notes and this week's weekly leadership guide for those who want to just start thinking about this when engaging stakeholders. Eric, we're not even talking about how to make decisions, really. We're just talking about, I mean, the whole book's about how to make decisions and difficult decisions. And you go through so much on morals and ethics and the position of your role and how much that informs it. So I mean, if this was useful, I hope folks will find the book for more because there's a ton more here that really, um, I think, opens up the complexity of decision-making in a really healthy way for us and gives us something really practical to latch on to. I want to ask you one other thing, though. The You've done a tremendous amount of research for this book. I mean, the examples, um, you talk about so many organizations that we'd recognize and the work you've done over the years. A lot of thinking came together for this book. And I, I'm kind of curious, as you went through the process of the research and the interviews and the writing, what's something during that process that uh, came up for you that you've since changed your mind on? Yeah, uh, it's a great question and, and, and a tough one in, in a lot of ways. Um, I do start off the book saying, 
uh, actually, the first line of the of the preface is this book is wrong. And <laughs> you do say that, that, yeah. I do, I do, and uh, and part of that is uh, not to discourage people from reading it, but just to say everything that we do exists in a context, and that context changes quickly. And so there's probably stuff that I've written about or thought about here, shared with with readers here, that might not be correct by the time they read it. The one example that comes to mind when I started this, I was thinking a lot about the notions of values, morals ethics and role responsibilities in informing how people make decisions. And I felt really strongly at first that we should talk about values, but I made a change along the way. I thought, actually, values are aspirational. They're who we want to be in the world. They're potentially subject to uh, social desirability. They tell us what we want to stand for, but morals tell us what we will not stand for. And for a long time, I thought, well, I don't want to get into the business of talking about morality at work. That's dangerous. It's inappropriate. It's been used to marginalize people who are already marginalized or minoritized. Um, But as time went on, I changed my mind completely. And I became of the view that it's actually really important to get crystal clear about our morality, about the sources of our sense of right and wrong, and to make that explicit in the workplace, in our conversations and interactions with each other when we're building teams and when we're building organizational cultures. That's not as uh, as easy as it sounds. There's a bit of self-reflection that needs to take place first and the understanding of how those morals can be applied appropriately. But where I once thought we should keep morality out of the workplace, now I feel that actually we should make it explicit and engage with morality with intent. Eric Pliner is the author of Difficult Decisions, How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity, and Empathy. Eric, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for having me, Dave. We've had many past episodes on both stakeholders and decision-making, several of them I'd recommend if this conversation was helpful to you. One of them is episode 240, How to Influence Many Stakeholders with Andy Kaufman. Andy and I talked about the reality in that episode that uh, gone are the days when most of us just think about reporting to a single manager or a single customer or a single stakeholder in almost every situation. There are many stakeholders we all need to be mindful of, both inside and outside the organization, and many cases, there's lots of stakeholders. How to handle that effectively, episode 240. We talked about some good tactics for that. Uh, Also recommended is episode 328, how to deal with opponents and adversaries. Peter Block was my guest on that episode, and we talked about the reality of when we are working with others inside the organization and even externally, how do we handle it when we don't have agreement? And how do we handle that depending on where trust is inside those relationships? Episode 328 for some practical ways to handle that in the context of organizational politics. A very, very helpful episode for that. I'd also recommend episode 499, The Way to Make Better Decisions. Annie Duke was my guest on that episode. We talked about her research on decision-making and some of the fallacies that we tend to bring into our work and our personal lives each day on how we think about decisions. Uh, So many things that were helpful for me in that conversation of how I think about decisions, and I know will be helpful to you as well, episode 499 for that. And then finally, the recent conversation with Nick Timoros, how to handle a difficult stakeholder. That's episode 581. Hopefully not the situation you find yourself in, but if it is, and it is for almost all of us, certainly at some points in our careers, episode 581, a bit of inspiration on how to handle that tough situation. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the 
coachingforleaders.com website. One of the advantages of free membership is once you set up your free membership, you can search the entire library by topic. One of the areas is decision-making. So many episodes we've had over the years, in addition to the ones I just mentioned. So if that's top of mind for you right now, lots more that you can discover in there. In addition, one of the other benefits of free membership is that each week I send to you in about the middle of the week, a update, a weekly update with the notes from the episode, all of the relevant stories I found for you, other links to other podcasts, resources, quotes from books that I found in one message that will be useful to you in your ongoing leadership development between the weekly episodes and, of course, all the relevant links that we mention in the show each week. All of those you can get access to just by going over to coachingforleaders.com, setting up your free membership. You'll get the weekly leadership guide each week. You'll get access into the entire library by topic and, of course, tons of other benefits inside a free membership. Go on over there and join with us if you haven't already. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Bonnie back to the show. We are going to be responding to your questions on our regular question and answer episode. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback to submit a question for us for consideration for next week's episode or for a future Q&A episode. And we will see you back next Monday. Have a great week.